Chapter 4, European Adventures, 1973-1975 through 1975. Trier, Germany, which would be our home base for the next two years, is an ancient city dating back to pre-Roman times. Located on the Mosul River in west-central Germany, it is positioned six miles from the border of Luxembourg and 22 miles from the border of France. During the era of the Roman Empire, this community served as the western capital of that empire, ruling the entire region that stretched from Britain to Spain. Emperor Constantine the Great moved from his palace in Trier to establish Constantinople as the eastern capital of the empire. Due to its prominence in ancient times, Trier still boasts from the Roman era a massive throne room building, a coliseum, a set of baths, a huge gateway remnant from the original city walls, <coughs> and a massive bridge spanning the river, while the central core of its ancient cathedral was once a Roman temple. Many buildings representing later eras of history also survive in the compact city of 90,000 inhabitants, including Renaissance homes surrounding the ancient marketplace and elaborate Baroque palace, and the modest birthplace of Karl Marx, who was descended from a long line of trier rabbis. The white wine industry for which the city and the entire Mosul Valley have become world famous was initiated during the Roman era. Heinz Rose, the former lead trumpet of the trier orchestra, who had just moved down to the second position, very kindly and generously assisted Doree and me during our entire stay there. Although there was no common language between us until we gradually learned enough German, Heinz made us feel very welcome, helped us to rent an apartment overlooking the Roman bridge, aided our purchase of a Volkswagen Beetle, and familiarized us with the places to shop and obtain various services. He also guided us through miles of red tape and myriad rubber stampings during such activities as filling out payroll deduction forms and acquiring international driver's licenses, and generally made our lives as comfortable as possible. This applied on the job as well, as he guided me through the daily details of life in an opera pit orchestra that also played monthly symphonic concerts on stage. In addition, he and various of the other wind players patiently served as my language coaches, speaking clearly and slowly as I made my way through this musical, cultural, and linguistic adventure. A definite sign of my language progress came just 10 weeks after we had arrived in Germany, when I was able to discuss details of our insurance policy with an insurance agent on the phone in an outdoor phone booth at a very noisy intersection. The orchestra's first flute, Rikio Arai, his wife Shoko, and their toddler daughter Sayaka, who became our closest friends in Trier, spoke no English and we spoke no Japanese. The Germans thought it was amusing to hear us communicating with each other in German, our only common language. Beginning with our very first week in Trier, Dory and I took full advantage of the touristic opportunities that were available to us as year-round residents of Europe. Starting with the area of the city itself, and then expanding outward in ever-widening circles, we thoroughly studied the historical, artistic, musical, and architectural aspects of each country. Every time my work schedule offered two or more days off in a row, we were on the road, learning about and absorbing the cultural aspects of European life. And during the days when we were at home and I was on the job, we were continually studying and planning our future jaunts. Compared to American tourists who have a limited number of days in which to squeeze in as many activities as possible, we had few time constraints on our travels. When our available time came to an end on any given trip, we returned home to Trier for me to do my job and then drove back to our previous stopping point some days or weeks later to continue our traveling. We seldom had to depart from a country without enjoying each aspect of that particular land which interested in us. 
It was during this period that I worked out a system of keeping in excellent shape by practicing three times a day in our parked Volkswagen while living as a tourist at the same time. I continued to utilize this practice system throughout my entire playing career, which enabled me to simultaneously keep my chops in shape and enjoy traveling and studying. In the Opera House, the monthly symphonic concerts on stage represented the job that I had been training for over the course of many years, and the scheduled literature was excellent. The seven programs that particular season included such pieces as Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique, Handel's Water Music, Richard Strauss's Bourgeoisie Gentilhomme, Prokofiev's Classical Symphony, Stravinsky's Firebird Suite, Schumann's Second Symphony, and Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. In contrast, playing opera accompaniments provided more of a challenge psychologically. The literature was fine, including such works as Verdi's La Traviata, Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel, Mozart's La Clemenza de Tito, and the German operetta Vogelhandler, The Bird Seller, which was filled with interesting trumpet solos that I enjoyed playing during each of its 28 performances. However, the accompaniment role of the orchestra in an opera house, nearly always subservient to the vocalists on the stage, was in decided contrast to the extroverted and emotive style of playing that I had emulated all my life, and I found it rather difficult to perform this background role on a steady daily basis. Since the majority of German orchestral players are brought up listening to such performances and studying with opera-playing teachers, they readily accept this subdued mentality of an anonymous pit musician. As a result, they find the occasional symphonic concerts on stage much more of a challenge, since they have not spent their lives developing the more extroverted style of music-making which much of this literature requires to be played properly. Even those relatively few German musicians who perform exclusively symphonic pieces tend to play in a very non-individualistic style, nearly always subservient to the combined ensemble sound. This non-virtuosic approach tends to produce very lackluster performances, especially when it's applied to works of the Romantic and modern periods. My first introduction to the more casual, subdued, and hidden approach of German playing came when we opened the season in Trier with a series of performances of Mozart's opera La Clemenza de Tito, presented on an outdoor stage amid the picturesque ruins of the ancient Roman baths. I was rather taken aback when the other members of the trumpet section and the entire trombone section headed off down the street during their tacit movements of each performance to have a beer at the nearby tavern. From long experience, they knew exactly how many minutes the score allowed them to be absent, so they timed their return accordingly and then played in their usual subdued and barely noticed fashion. Later, when we moved into the theater for the main season, it was not unusual for many of their colleagues to drink beers in the musicians' canteen downstairs during both tacit movements and intermissions of performances. In fact, during our opera presentation on New Year's Eve, the music director himself provided an entire case of champagne for the orchestra members to imbibe during the intermission. That evening, since it was actually condoned and promoted by the boss who was conducting that particular performance, I figured that I would join in the conviviality. My playing during the second half certainly did not match the standards that I had observed among the Chicago brass section. Having had that experience one time, I never drank again while on any job. A couple of months after first arriving in Trier, I mentioned in a, in a letter to Bud and Avis that I'd been booked to play a number of performances of Handel's Messiah in the region during December, as well as a presentation of Bach's Christmas Oratorio with Ed Tarr. The latter contact was due to Bud's recommending me to Ed. 
I would also play another set of Baroque gigs with the Edward Tarr Trompetin Ensemble in Munich during the following year. Shortly after my letter went out, I received a return missive from Bud with some welcome news. Quote, I just sent you today by airmail your favorite Yamaha piccolo trumpet. I figured if you haven't run into a decent one over there, you might need it. So it should arrive almost with this letter. I included both of the third valve slides also, unquote. I certainly was elated to have that original experimental horn available to me again since I had returned it to Bud before moving to Germany and had been relegated ever since to using my lesser grade Selmer. The master again wrote some weeks later, quote, I'm glad the little piccolo trumpet got there okay. I figured you might as well be using it since I have others here to use and I know you like that one, unquote. On the subject of the development of new horns and bells, Bud again wrote me in January, quote, I'm doing the Hummel with Schulte next week in Ed Tarr's Universal Edition in the key of E. Schulte made several bells, both for my E-flat frame and the F-G frame, and one in red brass worked really well on the F-G frame, so I'll be using that one, unquote. A couple of weeks later, he reported on the response of the horn during the solo events and also revealed his mental outlook concerning the extremely heavy demands of the Chicago Symphony schedule. Quote, the Hummel went very well. I have several pirate tapes and will run off some copies so your, your friends can have one. The trumpet was excellent. Arno Lange from the Berlin Opera thought it sounded like a German B-flat. I will do the Brandenburg and Carnegie Hall next year, I think. Schulte has asked me several times before, but it's always on with Mahler 6th or something else very strenuous. But I have a little Martin Piccolo that laid around Schulte's shop for years. I finally tried it, and it's a sensational Brandenburg horn. So I think I will play it there next year, along with some Schoenberg and the Tchaikovsky Fifth. Take a lot of beer to cool my chops after that concert, I imagine. But since Schulte has been quite anxious that I should play it in New York, I really want to. So I told him if this Martin trumpet is as good as I think, and if he doesn't care if I pop a couple on the Tchaikovsky, I'll do it. And of course, it keeps me practicing, unquote. This private glimpse into Bud's outlook illustrated the degree of mastery that he had developed over the decades, as well as his extraordinary level of confidence. The following season, he did perform the Brandenburg in New York, as well as in Boston and Washington on the same tour, along with the Tchaikovsky Fifth Symphony on each performance. In the early winter of 1974, Bud began searching for a good Bach C trumpet to send to me for my trier colleagues. In the process, he reported a couple of discoveries. Quote, I've just recently got some very interesting information about the Bach trumpets. You know, they have been using the number 25 lead pipe for many years now. That's what we all have on our horns here. And you remember how we discussed why your horn and some others were brighter in sound than others of the same 229 model large bore. Well, it has just come to my attention from several sources that they make a different number 25 pipe now for a standard pipe, but make the older type such as we have and call it the Herseth pipe. And all of this unbeknown to me all this time. The horns I have here now to choose from for your German colleague all have the new 25 pipe. And while they tune very well and play free and open, they're all a little bit brighter and more raw sounding than mine, so it has to be the pipe. Look at the pipe on yours, and if it's flared out a little just before it goes to the tuning slide tube, it's a new 25 pipe. So, that is some new information to think about. 
These 239 bells are now identical to the former 229 bells, which they were not some years ago. So that is not a concern. They all play well, but are brighter than my own, but are also easier to play and tune a little better than mine." Unquote. Bud had an encyclopedic understanding of horns and mouthpieces, and he could thoroughly judge their various qualities after a very short amount of playing. However, he nearly always focused on musical subjects in his playing and teaching, rather than on technical and physical aspects and on equipment. Among the features of various European museums that were of particular interest to us during our travels were their extensive musical instrument collections. During this period, while Baroque trumpets and music were a special focus for me, we thoroughly enjoyed a major collection of early instruments at a museum in Brussels. However, one of our Kent family jokes thereafter was based upon the incident that took place when I reached over the velvet rope to check out with my fingertip the cup of the mouthpiece on an 18th century long trumpet that was displayed on the wall. Just then a guard stepped into the room, causing me to quickly retract my arm, and in the process jar the mouthpiece from the horn and send it clanking to the floorboards. That guard followed us rather closely during the following several hours while we continued our study of those precious instruments. Ever since arriving in Germany, I had been corresponding with the Yamaha office in Hamburg, which oversaw the importation of all Yamaha instruments for the entirety of Europe. The officials at the firm kept me posted concerning the production of their new piccolo trumpet, which, unbeknownst to them, Bud had helped to create with Mr. Kaji, the chief of Yamaha's brass development department near Tokyo. Finally, the officials wrote in the early spring to inform me that the very first shipment of the production model of this horn was due to arrive shortly. As soon as I had several days off in a row, we departed for northern Germany, taking about three days en route for touristic stops. When we finally arrived at the Yamaha offices in Hamburg, I was grubby, disheveled, and unshaven after several days of camping and touristing in very rainy weather. One of my favorite disguises for concealing my occupations as a dignified symphonic musician and scholar. At first, the Japanese office staff seemed to be a little bit put off by the appearance of this apparent resident of the street. However, they artfully retained their polite demeanor, and the manager soon escorted me to a large room that had several rows of new piccolos laid out on tables. I pulled from my old torn gig bag the original prototype version in raw brass, and began playing back and forth between it and the production versions. Curious about the horn that I had brought for making comparisons, the very quiet manager and his colleague politely asked to see it. When I showed it to them, I pointed out its serial number of 001 and mentioned that it had come directly from the work branch of Mr. Yoshihiro Kaji, the head of the company's brass instrument development department in Hamamatsu. With wide eyes, they exclaimed, Ah, so, and whisked it off to a back room to examine it in detail. After trying out the entire series of production horns, I happily departed with the best of the batch, as well as with the original developmental version, which the Yamaha people were a little reluctant to release to me. I would have loved to have heard the behind-the-scenes conversations in their suite of offices that day. In early April, I traveled to Stuttgart to audition for the solo trumpet position in the radio orchestra, an ensemble of the Süddeutsch Rundfunk, the South German radio company. There were eight broadcasting companies in Germany, and each of these companies, except the one in Berlin, had two full-time orchestras on its staff. 
Each of the eight so-called symphony orchestras, which employed from 56 to 114 core players, taped symphonic programs for later broadcast, typically doing one program every two weeks. The seven so-called radio orchestras, the broadcasting company in Berlin did not have such a group, each employing 45 to 89 core musicians, likewise taped a program every two weeks for later broadcast. However, these latter ensembles tended to record somewhat lighter music, including overtures and pop tunes. At this time, a total of 97 full-time professional orchestras operated in Germany, all of which were supported by the state. These opera companies and symphonic ensembles were generously funded by a usage tax that was levied each year on every radio and television set operating in the country. Among all of these musicians, the members of the 15 staff orchestras of the broadcasting companies were paid the highest salaries. The only exception was the Berlin Philharmonic, whose 120 members earned an even more generous income. In addition to their high salary, the staff musicians in the broadcasting orchestras typically prepared only one program for taping every two weeks, which allowed considerable time off between programs for doing outside performances and teaching. Thus, in the world of German musicians, the radio orchestra positions were the absolutely best ones to have. I suspected that the audition procedure for the radio orchestra job would be out of the ordinary when my invitation did not include a list of operatic and symphonic excerpts to prepare for the final round. The reason for this omission became apparent after all of the candidates had completed the customary preliminary round using the first movement of the Haydn Concerto. After the elimination of most of the players in the first round, we semifinalists then each played through the second and third movements of the Haydn. Finally, with the field of candidates now very much reduced, each of us finalists played a series of five or six orchestral excerpts. However, we could not have prepared to play these specific passages in advance, since each of them had been transcribed from little-known music for other instruments. In addition, they'd been written out so that a different key of transposition was required for each excerpt. In this final round, all of my years of heavy emphasis on practicing the various transpositions by both singing and playing really paid off. After I had finished playing on stage, I could hear a male German voice out in the dimly lit hall asserting that my use of a C trumpet on the excerpts instead of the customary B-flat of German players gave me an unfair advantage in the transpositions. Another voice countered that statement, explaining that I had to transpose just as much as any of the other players, including all passages in the key of B-flat. With little further discussion, I was chosen as the new solo trumpet, after which I signed my employment contract. At the time, I didn't realize the significance of my signing that routine document. Happily returning to Trier, I gave notice of my imminent departure to the management of the Opera House. Knowing this specific end date of my opera accompaniment career made my heart soar like a hawk. After finishing the last two months of operas and symphonic concerts, Dori and I then enjoyed a wonderful trip of eight weeks through France, Spain, and Portugal. During our five days in the Pyrenees, we spent more time underground in the painted caves of ancient man than on the surface. Later, on the Pic du Midi, we were awakened in the middle of the night by the arrival of hundreds of French people. They were excitedly awaiting the cyclists in the Grand Tour de France, who would soon be coming through the mountain pass on which our little tent was pitched. Upon our return to Trier, intending to leave shortly for Stuttgart to locate an apartment, I found a letter from the broadcasting company waiting for me. Some three months after my audition and contract signing in April, 
The management had decided to combine the personnel of the two staff orchestras into a single oversized ensemble in order to reduce costs. In the process, some of the members of each group had taken an early retirement, while certain others had been fired. In time, the number of members in the large combined ensemble would be gradually reduced by further retirements. Since a young solo trumpeter had been hired for the symphony orchestra in recent years, I was offered the fourth position in this ensemble, although my employment contract, based upon my audition, had specified the position of solo trumpet. By German standards, the fourth trumpet chair in a radio orchestra was the absolute dream position to have. There was a very widespread custom practiced among nearly all symphonic wind players in this country of moving down within the section as a person aged, leaving the work of the lead position to the younger, less experienced individuals. This seemingly odd practice allowed the older, more experienced musicians to have more time for both playing outside performances and teaching. I was being offered the enviable opportunity to move directly to the fourth slot while I was still a very young man without having to put in my time playing lead. How could you possibly refuse such an offer, they wondered. However, I did refuse to join the orchestra under those conditions. In my best German, across the table from the radio company's lawyer, I asserted that I had auditioned for and had signed a contract to play a solo trumpet position, and that was the position in which I was interested. When it became clear that I intended to hold firm on this decision, the management worked out a compromise agreement with me, by which I would be paid one year's salary without having to play a note. They even agreed to split the lump sum of the salary between two different tax years so I could avoid paying the higher rate of taxation that would be levied on a single large payment. Obviously, it would have been utter folly for me to have turned down the offered fourth position if Doree and I had intended to remain in Europe on a long-term basis. However, we had already decided that we would return to the States after completing all of our travels in Europe. I had trained most of my life to be a lead player, and I did not want to accept a second position at this point, especially among German players. In addition, I didn't want to spend my entire career among musicians of lesser quality than those who played in the major orchestras in the U.S. Besides, at age 26, we had begun making plans to start our family and raise our children in the States. Not knowing that I had made this personal decision, the staff of the magazine Bild und Funk, the national television and radio guide for Germany, which was also distributed in Austria, Switzerland, and France, published the following account, here translated. Out of work on the first day? Bad prospects for trumpeter Timothy Kent. Willie Mathis, the head of the radio orchestra of the South German Radio Company, was enraptured. Quote, the young man is brilliant. Let's hire him, unquote. The enthusiasm of the Stuttgart music boss concerned an American who had auditioned for him several months earlier, Timothy Kent, the outstanding solo trumpeter from Chicago. Quote, such a talent, said Mathis at the time, one simply cannot let escape. But in the meantime, it appears that this talent nevertheless is slipping from him. Not because the American has done something to break the contract, but because Mathis's radio orchestra of the South German Radio Company appears to face dissolution. The time for this planned orchestra exodus, that month in which Timothy Kent should have begun in Stuttgart, September. South German radio director Bausch is as unhappy about this development as the musicians. Quote, but our plans really do not rise out of wantonness, but rather only out of the necessity to save money, unquote. The radio company hopes to save some 2 million marks annually through the dissolution, partly through moving musicians to the symphony orchestra, partly through early retirements, 
and partly through dismissals, enough to justify so massive a step? Yet the radio company meets with strong trade union opposition because of its action. One musician said, quote, If at first an orchestra dissolution is carried out here, then the other radio-television orchestras in Germany will also go, unquote. Therefore, there is still one tiny hope for solo trumpeter Timothy Kent if he arrives unsuspecting in Stuttgart at the beginning of September, namely that perhaps at the last minute the dissolution of the Stuttgart Orchestra has been called off. During the previous March, Bud had written to inform me that Vince Chikowitz would be retiring from the CSO trumpet section in the fall. On September 4, 1974, he updated me on the situation. Quote, The opening in the trumpet section has now been announced in the Union magazine, and the auditions are for fourth. Charlie G. is moving to second, and our plan for late October and November. No specific dates yet. For the arrangements and the list of requirements, to be really fair, I think the excerpt list should come from the office, not from me, write to the personnel manager of the symphony. After applying to play for the audition, I was assigned a time slot on October 16, 1974. Before we flew to the States for me to take the audition, the orchestra made an extended tour of Europe in September, including a concert in the Frankfurt suburb of Holst. Dory and I met Bud and Avis there to have a brief get-together and to hear the performance. On the 16th of October, I witnessed in Chicago for the first time how a classy audition would be conducted by a top-flight orchestra in the big league, in contrast to all of the previous auditions that I had ever played before going to Germany. First of all, each and every applicant was allowed to audition, irregardless of his or her background, training, and experience. Only five candidates were scheduled to be heard each hour by the audition committee, whose nine members represented a cross-section of the orchestra's instrumentation. Upon the arrival of each applicant at Orchestra Hall, he or she was ushered to a private room downstairs to warm up and quietly prepare to offer the best possible performance. An orchestra staff member kept each one posted on their approaching playing time. And when that time arrived, Mr. Williams, the dignified and fatherly African-American who was the head of Orchestra Hall security, ushered the applicant into the elevator and up to the offstage area. From there, the audition proctor led the candidate out onto the stage, where they both walked on a long strip of carpet to conceal any telltale heel sounds. A long row of folding screens was stretched across the front of the stage, concealing the applicant from the listeners in the ground floor seats. The proctor, setting a relaxed mood, instructed the player concerning the pieces that he or she was expected to perform, which included first a portion of the Haydn or Hummel Concerto, candidate's choice, followed by a series of orchestral excerpts. In some cases, Bud, sitting in the audience area, would request that a player repeat a given passage with certain alterations. Each applicant was guaranteed a minimum of five minutes of performance time. However, all qualified ones played for at least 10 minutes. After a given set of five candidates had completed this preliminary audition, the committee voted silently, with no discussion of any kind being allowed. By this method, no influence or vote peddling could be done by a member to promote his or her students or friends. The voting was not a comparison of the various candidates to each other. Instead, it was simply a straight assessment of whether any of them was definitely of Chicago Symphony quality. An applicant was required to receive six or more committee votes to be advanced to the finals. If someone received five votes, he or she played again anonymously in a later round to give them another chance to garner the required six votes. 
After the votes had all been tabulated, a staff member announced the results to the five candidates downstairs so that there was no interminable period of waiting and hoping. No limit was placed on the total number of applicants who could be advanced to the finals. In this orderly, calm, and dignified procedure, every effort was made by the CSO to help each candidate to play as well as the situation of a high-stakes audition would allow. Three such days were spent in the hearing the preliminary round of applicants on October 12th, 16th, and 25th. My, quote, hour in the barrel took place between 10 and 11 o'clock in the morning on the 16th. This was not the greatest time of day to show one's best attributes, but someone had to be assigned those early time slots, and I happened to be one of those less fortunate souls. From the field of 80 candidates who played over the three days, an equally large number of individuals had eliminated themselves in advance after receiving the list of the expected repertoire, five finalists were chosen. They included Phil Smith from the master's degree program at Juilliard and Tim Kent on a temporary visit from Germany. These five individuals were invited to return for the final audition on November 23rd, traveling at the orchestra's expense. For the latter audition, which which took place between 4.30 and 7 p.m., each of us was again given excellent treatment with a private dressing room in which to warm up and prepare and to spend the time between the solo round and the excerpts round. In this case, there was no carpet strip or concealing row of screens across the front of the stage. We could be clearly seen by the audition committee members, Bud and Maestro Schulte, in the ground floor seats. First, each of us played a major portion of the Haydn or Hummel concerto with piano accompaniment, while the other candidates remained in their respective rooms downstairs. Then we each returned, one at a time, to play a number of excerpts. Thus, the playing time of each individual applicant totaled about a half an hour. For the first round, the solo, I was in excellent form. However, during the interval, while each of the others played their solo, I allowed myself to cool off so that my playing in the excerpts round did not represent my best abilities. A deserving Phil Smith won the position, and I was given time to learn from the experience and develop my playing further. The following day, which was the last day on our six-week round-trip airline tickets from Germany, Dori and I visited Bud and Avis at home in Oak Park. There, Bud said that I had definitely played the best among the five candidates in the solo round, and he agreed that I had not played my usual on the orchestral excerpts in the final round. He was very supportive, and we both knew that other opportunities would likely unfold in due time. Before we departed, Bud and Avis presented us with a signed copy of the book entitled The Chicago Symphony Orchestra, A Wonderful Photographic Study of Life in the CSO. After returning to Trier, I spent the winter and early spring doing freelance gigs, including Bach oratorio performances with Ed Tarr, while we awaited the arrival of warmer weather so that we could resume our long-range travels. In late February, Bud wrote me about an open position that he thought I might want to audition for. You may have heard about the opening in Detroit, Frank Katarabek is going from Detroit to Philadelphia on the 1st. Gil Johnson quit to go to Miami University to teach. They offered me the job in Philadelphia, but I turned it down, of course, so they had a small invitational audition, and Frank got it. So his old job is open. The ad just came out in The International Musician, and it says the audition will be late March. I don't know the repertoire for Detroit, but if I can find out soon, I'll send it, although they should send that to you soon, unquote. I was not interested in playing in the Motor City at that time, considering the serious financial instability of the orchestra. 
However, when the lead job soon opened up in both Cincinnati and Edmonton, Alberta, I thought that this pair of auditions would be worth a trip back to the States before Doree and I set out on the road again. After packing all of our belongings and shipping them to friends in Oak Park to be stored until our return in the fall, Doree set up temporary residence with friends in Trier, and I departed across the Atlantic. By coincidence, the two auditions were scheduled to take place within the span of two days. I first traveled to Cincinnati, where I played on each piece exactly as I wanted, in both the preliminary round and the finals later in the day. Various of the other candidates in the final round indicated to me that I had clearly swept the competition and had certainly won the job. Thus, we were all very surprised when the personnel manager announced that no one had been chosen for the position. This outcome was only explained sometime later, when a player who had not even auditioned for the position was simply appointed to fill it. It seemed clear that this had been a prearranged situation, and that the public audition had apparently been a sham, held so that the orchestra would appear to be following the norms of the above-board audition procedures that were becoming more common by then. Within hours of the Cincinnati audition, I had made my way to the airport, had caught a flight to a Toronto where the Edmonton Symphony audition was to be held at the university the following day, and was ensconced in a small airport office with three Canadian immigration and customs officials. In addition to my appearance, which fit perfectly the profile of both a terrorist and a drug runner, my story definitely sounded concocted. I was an American musician living in Germany, but without a permanent address or, or employer there, flying from the U.S. into Canada to audition for an orchestra job. I bore an invitation from the Edmonton Symphony and was laden with four trumpets and plenty of music. However, in their eyes, I was either a terrorist, a mule smuggling in drugs, or someone who intended to sell those instruments in Canada and slip out without paying sales tax to the government. Why would a suspicious-looking guy have four trumpets with him unless he was going to sell them? Finally, after a very thorough search of both my possessions and my personhood, I was released into the Toronto night to find a hotel for a few hours and then make my way to the University of Toronto for the morning audition. The number of candidates who appeared on this occasion was rather limited compared to the huge cattle calls at auditions in the States, since Canadian players were not numerous and few Americans were seeking employment in orchestras north of the border. I was rather amused when one of the American applicants decided to leave without playing a single note saying he didn't stand a chance when he heard me buzzing my mouthpiece at the beginning of my warm-up. After a preliminary round on the first couple sections of the Haydn Concerto, I was the only remaining candidate. The conductor then tested me for a full hour, having me play the entire Haydn, as well as all of the orchestral excerpts for which I had brought music. He then informed me in considerable detail about the ensemble, as well as the attributes of life in Edmonton. Clinching this Lead trumpet position certainly appeared to be a sure bet to me. However, sometime later, I was notified by the conductor that the lead player who had been poised to depart had instead decided to remain on the job, so there was unfortunately no place for me in the orchestra. Returning to Germany, I rejoined Doree, and we set off on a huge journey of five months from early May through September, which took us through southern Germany, Austria, Yugoslavia, Greece, the Greek islands, Italy, Switzerland, Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and England before selling our car in Trier and finally departing for Chicago. Our two years in Europe had been immensely enriching for us culturally, and I had become a much more experienced player during that time.